Thanks. Hi. I think this morning we've gotten a lot of great information, and uh, we'd like to encourage everybody to ask uh, questions. Let, let me just start off with hi. Uh, I guess the good news is there are a lot of options, and there are more coming, uh, and there are a lot of different factors for individual patients. How much time do you allow to counsel patients? Because obviously, there are a lot of things to think about, and we're all busy. To counsel patients on uh, prep? Yes. Um, so I generally um, at, start with, uh, you know, asking them what they know about prep and then go from there. So generally it's, it's really answering their questions um, and, you know, five to 10 minutes, depending on um, how much somebody might know about prep already. Um, and then I, you know, trying to task shift this off to our um, navigators or our social worker and ensuring that they are actually aware of prepping can do a lot of that counseling as well. Cause if I have 20 minutes, you know, to, to talk about other medical problems, like it, you know, spending that 10 minutes would be important, but somebody else can also do that. Um, and our staff are actually quite good at um, doing the counseling in some ways better than some of the providers. Um, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I, I see Mike is about to say something, but before we get to Mike, I mean, I think you have a great advantage in that you have a very knowledgeable and presumably extensive staff, but uh, Jean-Michel uh, uh, in France, how, how do you approach this? Do you have the same kind of resources and uh, how much time do you spend with your patients? Because I see you have 3000 patients, so uh, you have a lot to talk to. Right, well, you know, so far PrEP delivery is really hospital cent uh, centralized and we, we're trying to uh, involve GPs to deliver PrEP. And, and recently actually in France, uh, last June, GP were allowed to really prescribe and monitor people on PrEP because one of the issues we're facing with PrEP now is, you know, implementation. And we, we need to really upscale implementation. You, you've done a great job in the U.S. In France, we only have like 30,000 people on PrEP right now, and that's clearly not enough. Uh, so, you know, beyond physicians, we're trying to involve nurses in our clinic and, and really to rely also on GPs to, um, you know, uh, take their part in, in, in this prep uh, uh, strategy. Yeah, so you look like you had something to say. Yeah, Jean-Michel, so you, your team not only pioneered 211, you also have been looking a lot at prophylaxis against STIs with doxycycline. Can you tell us briefly about that? And then, Hyman, if you don't mind, make a comment about if you've been using that in your practice and in what settings. Well, thank you, Mike. Well, with the one, um, you know, the 211 regimen, now we have, you know, experience since uh, uh, 2012, so <clears throat> a couple of years. And, and really for, you know, we offer the choice to, to the, the, the PrEP um, participants or people uh, asking for PrEP. And what we've seen over the years is that, you know, roughly 50% would choose on demand, 50% daily, but eventually it's not that different. And, and we, we, you know, people can switch from one regimen to the other, and um, it, it works quite well uh, once you have the, some experience in explaining. Um, it, it takes a couple of, uh, you know, some time to explain people how to do it and uh, how to uh, adapt their behavior to the, the prep regimen. But, but then it's quite easy and, and people like that. And they, they know, you know, uh, uh, that they, they're happy not to take pills when they are not exposed to HIV uh, they don't have, you know, kind um, uh, uh, less uh, sex, for example. Regarding uh, STI prophylaxis, we, we, we investigated uh, uh, doxycycline uh, post-exposure prophylaxis because we've seen 
in our initial PrEP studies such a high rate of STIs in this population. And we, we said we had to do something about that. And we thought doxycycline, you know, for chlamydia and syphilis would probably be effective. And indeed it was um, not effective against gonorrhea though, because the, there is already a high rate of uh, uh, resistance to tetracycline uh, and doxycycline, um, you know, across the, across the globe. Uh, but I, I would say for this strategy, we are very cautious. So we, we do not use this strategy outside clinical trials right now. There are a number of trials ongoing, one in San Francisco and Seattle, one in Paris. We're trying to repeat this experiment on a larger population to confirm these findings, and especially to make sure that we are not you know, jeopardizing uh, these antibiotics to treat STIs. And you, you know, for, for syphilis, for example, doxycycline, is the first choice in people who have penicillin allergy. So we, we don't want to uh, spoil uh, doxycycline and, and we don't want to uh, favor the emergence of uh, chlamydia or syphilis resistance to, to doxycycline. So we are very careful with that. Um, you know, these bugs are different from gonorrhea. Uh, resistance to doxycycline in chlamydia and syphilis is probably uh, very difficult to select. It has not been seen so far but we don't want to be responsible for that. So we are very cautious and we are testing, you know, other approaches uh, for STIs. And I think that, you know, the field is now moving towards vaccines for bacterial STIs. There are a lot of uh, new vaccines for gonorrhea that are in development right now, even for syphilis. You know, we, there is no reason we don't have a, a vaccine for syphilis. And for chlamydia, it might be a little bit challenging uh, to develop a vaccine. There have been, you know, trials. We, which have failed, but I think we still need to try. So I would say antibiotic prophylaxis, uh, well, it probably is not the way forward not, in the future. Yeah, I'm not ready for prime time right now. So um, I think I may have answered your comment, Hyman, but uh, you guys have a study there that you're enrolling into for that? Yeah, so there's a study that's looking at um, use of doxycycline uh, post-exposure prophylaxis for uh, people on PrEP and people living with HIV. Um, and, you know, in my clinical practice, uh, you know, I refer, because I work in these clinics, I refer individuals to that. Uh, not everyone is willing or wants to be randomized to receive it or not. And so I actually have had some of my patients who may have had like two incident syphilis cases in a year. You know, I've given them doxycycline PEP um, and it's a limited number of people. Um, but I think that uh, this is something the community is aware of now because it's sort of um, in the community it's in uh, discussions uh, that people are having. Um, and so I have used it occasionally. It's not something that I would say is widespread. Right. Um, no, good point. Henry. Good. Um, we have three or four more minutes. One important point that's come up in a couple of questions, uh, maybe Jean-Michel, you could uh, respond to is whether or not it would ever be safe to use carbotegravir solely as an injection. I think that's obviously an important point to make sure that everybody's clear about but why we why we have an oral lead-in and whether we could ever treat patients without an oral lead-in. Right. I, I think, you know, Rafi would probably be more able to answer than me, but what I could say is that now in, in the extended um, uh, uh, study from the uh, capitagravir uh, injectable agents, there is no more, you know, uh, no more oral lead-in. So, uh, the safety is good enough now. We have a lot of experience with oral and injectable cavitegravir, and clearly the leading phase with oral pills is no longer uh, needed and it will not be uh, actually required 
unless uh, a physician would like to do it or a patient would like to, to use it. So I, I think regarding the, um, the oral leading, we're pretty clear about what to do. Um, what's great about these uh, cabotography studies is that it, it gives also the proof of concept that you could prevent HIV acquisition with a single agent. Um, you know, we, we have data with TDF-FTC, it's a combination. There are a limited number of data with TDF alone, but the guidelines would say today it's a combination for oral uh, PrEP. And, and clearly it would be great to have, um, you know, PrEP with the single agents. Uh, Rafi has highlighted a few, um, you know, limitations and we clearly need to better understand why some individual, despite the correct use of cabotegravir, had breakthrough HIV infections. And in some individuals, there was a selection of integrase resistance that may you know, confer some level of cross-resistance to dolutegravir. So I, I think we need to, to know a bit more and we have you know, um, upscaling implementation of cabotegravir where it's gonna be approved by FDA, which I think it will soon. Uh, we probably will you know, have more knowledge about what to do and how to manage uh, cabotegravir. And, you know, we have two more minutes, but maybe I ask Mike Sack. Hey, sir, the old time uh, people probably uh, are, are, would be a little bit worried about giving a long-acting drug before you knew whether there was uh, uh, tolerability. But it seems like now we have data. Are you comfortable with that? Not quite yet, but um, you know, all it's going to take is that end of one in your practice, and everyone will will freak out. But we'll follow the data. I mean, that's that's what we'll. We'll do in the long run for sure. I think the treatment data also gives us guidance on that as well. I mean, yeah. uh, there's not been adverse events when went direct to inject for treatment, and yeah. I think that. So I, I feel more comfortable given that we have both treatment and prevention data that moving directly to injection is not associated with worsening and, adverse events. And by definition, the more emerging drugs that Jean-Michel reviewed, um, once you give it, it's there, right? So these long-acting drugs with half-lives of uh, several days to a week or two, uh, they're going to be there. So that's just a risk that we have as we use, use long-acting drugs. A couple of practical questions, uh, I mean, just about um, which types of platforms do you use in terms of testing? How do you set it up? We briefly discussed how you go about deciding which tests to provide and how do you keep up with all that? Yeah, so um, it sort of depends on what the clinical site has. So some of our clinical sites use like StatPack, for example, rapid testing. Um, many use the um, Abbott um, sort of blood-based laboratory testing. Um, we have the you know luxury and advantage of having pooled HIV um, testing in our public health lab here. And so at our clinical sites where there is rapid testing, there can be the pool um, testing that's done. You know, a lot of the laboratory elements, I'm the um, laboratory and medical director at our San Francisco AIDS Foundation. And so there was a, a desire to have a genius so we could do the entire CDC algorithm um, on site. And so that took a lot of development to do. Um, but I think using like Quest or LabCorp, whatever lab testing you have available, to make it easier and uh, create as few headaches as possible to just support the testing um, is generally, I think, probably the best approach. Yeah. Um, Henry. No, I think we've reached. Uh, well, well, we got we got three minutes. They gave us some extra time, so we can take advantage of it. So I was going to, uh, uh, there is a question that comes up about cost and maybe since we have a U.S. based and a France uh, 
based. Uh, let's just talk about TDF FTC. Um, we saw earlier in in Rafi's talk about eighteen hundred dollars a month, but generics. Um, one of the chat comments was that it can be down as low as fifty dollars a month in the U.S. for generic, but that means a patient has to pay out of pocket. So, so Hyman, I'll start with you. Um, the grade A recommendation from uh, uh, that the public health service or whatever um, can people get the fifty dollars generic, and how how would how is this all paid for, and what does it cost? TDF, FTC. Yeah, so if somebody has insurance and they go through their insurance for coverage, then um, there's a zero copay. Um, and so what in the U.S. people will notice is that their TDF FTC looks different, right? So blue is the Gilead color. So most of the generics are now white. And so they just happened a few months ago. And so we actually had some patients concerned that they got the wrong medication um, because it changed color, um, but they had no bill. So, you know, people might have a copay for their blood pressure medication, but they will not have a copay for their, their prep. Um, and then, yes, you can get, actually, we have a couple of clinic, uh, pharmacies that offer for between 30 and $40 out of pocket. So this is helpful for people who might be on a, a, a parent's insurance and don't necessarily want their parents, um, particularly young people under 26, to know that they're, um, you know, getting Truvada so they, they feel comfortable paying for it out of pocket um, at $30 a month um, is something that's reasonable. So yes, it is available at that, that low cost. Yeah, Michelle, Michelle? Well, that's actually the reason why Gilead has not filed for approval for discovery for PrEP in Europe. It's because of the generics. We, we have like six or seven different generic. Uh, so we, we don't call them TDF anymore because it's not a fumarate salt. It's tenofovid disoproxyl, and you have different salts that could be combined with FTC. Oh, and uh, so it's TDFTC. Well, and, and actually, the cost can be as low as 10 euros per, per box or 30 pills. So if you take it on demand 15 pills a month instead of 30 pills, it comes down to 5 euros a month. So I used to say it's even cheaper than condoms to, mm. take, uh, to take pills, you know. Um, uh, so, well, th that's the main reason why it's going to be difficult for new products to be approved um, uh, as long as, you know, the cost uh, has to... Uh, uh, to be as low as um, generic TDF-FTC or to show a better effectiveness. And, and as you know, the effectiveness of TDF-FTC when it's taken as recommended is almost 100%. So it's going to be difficult to show uh, a, a better effectiveness. And e even in the cabotography trials that uh, Rafi presented, these were double-blind, double placebo-controlled study. So in those studies, for example, people had to come to the clinic to receive their injections. Whereas for the pills, they just were given a box of pills and the people will take or not their pills. And if they felt that they have received a, a real injection, then they probably were inclined not to take the pills as mm. well as they should be. So that's, that's why when, when you look at the incidence of uh, you know, HIV infection among MSM with uh, TDF-FTC in the 084 trial or in our study, you, you see a big difference that probably... Uh, is linked to this issue of adherence to, to pills. And for prevention, we know adherence is a key factor. So uh, back to uh, you know, cost, uh, in France, PrEP is uh, given for free. So you, you don't pay anything, you don't have any copay. So the government gives uh, PrEP for, you know, uh, for, for free, as long as you have a prescription. So that's why the government is really you know, 
careful about the cost and yeah, yeah. Uh, getting other drugs approved uh, will be a challenge, uh, if, especially if their cost is much higher than uh, generic TDF FTC. Yeah, so in France, it's a great A plus because you get it free <laughs> everywhere. Uh, Henry, I guess that's it for time. Well, huh? I think uh, if I left it after Mike, we would probably uh, uh, keep answering questions uh, all through <laughs> the lunch break. But uh, uh, let's take a break right now because we do have a panel at the end where we can uh, uh, come back to these. Uh, Rafi will be back for that panel so uh, we can uh, uh, involve him in that. But we're going to take a break now until 110 uh, Eastern time. And then Susan Buckbinder will... Uh, uh, start with a really great overview. Uh, so uh, I think this has been a great session and uh, we'll see you in 20 minutes.